Thanks, Ethan. Good morning, Mariners. How are you? It's good to be with you today. Um, man, Christmas, what a great week this has been. It's been great hearing from some of you about your past week. And how many of you ate too much over the last several days and have vowed to get in the best shape of your life in the new year, right? The good news is you still have two days to eat before January 1st starts. So you take advantage of that. You know, Jeff's away this weekend. He's getting a much-deserved break with his family. And it's great that you're here. And we get to open God's Word together today. You know, my title as pastor here is Pastor of Community Life. And I have the privilege of helping get people in our church connected and growing in their walks with Christ, in Christ and being in community together. Um, we've got so many great ministries that many of you have been a part of over this past year. You know, a great place people get connected early on and stay involved in is the women's ministry, the men's ministry, which is thriving, both of which meet on Thursday mornings and throughout the week. Two great places to plug in. I mean, as Ethan said, we've got Rooted in life groups. Rooted is the first 10 weeks of life groups. And many of you in this past year have been involved in one or both of those ministries. You've grown in your walks with God. You've been studying the Word of God. And you've wanted to make your spiritual growth a priority. And you've done that here, and it's awesome. For those of you who are new to our church, we want to help you get connected and invited in as you begin 2014. So if you've yet to get involved beyond the weekend service, let us help you. Let us help you find just the right fit for you to be a part of the community in this new season. Sound good? Cool. It's good to be with you guys, as I said today. And Mariners, this is the moment you've all been waiting for. Luke chapter 3, verse 23. The genealogy of Jesus. And all the God's people said, what are we talking about today? The genealogy. This is the moment you've been waiting for, 76 names, 38 of which you won't find anywhere else in the Bible. Some names that are difficult to pronounce, some names that sound like Jedi Knights. Why are they in the Bible, you've been asking yourselves? Well, today is your lucky day. We're going to take a look at the genealogy of Jesus, his family tree. And as we begin this morning, we want to acknowledge that every word in the Bible is God-breathed and profitable for our good. That everything in the Bible is from God and for our good. And we believe whatever we read in the Bible, a word, a verse, whatever, when we read it, we know there's gold there if we're, if we're willing to dig. If we're willing to stop and examine and study and take time, there's ways that God nourishes us through his word, and he will do that today as well. So as we begin, would you bow your heads and pray with me? God, we thank you that we can worship you in a free country and gather together, God, to worship you in spirit and truth with our whole hearts. And God, we pray in this moment that you would open our minds and our hearts to receive what you uniquely have for us today, Lord. We love you and we thank you that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you, have you ever looked back at your family history? I mean, really looked back over your family history, back generations. I, like all of you, have picked up stories about my family over time. You just kind of do when you're with your family. But recently I've been looking at those online websites that you see advertised all the time on, the, on your ancestry. And I, I checked one out and I spent the last couple weeks looking at my family line. Some things I knew, but there were some insights I hadn't learned before. And I'll just tell you very briefly what they are. Um, first of all, we've got my mother's side and my father's side. My mother's side is the Carey family, K-A-H-R-E, and they are from Germany. 
And they came over here in the late 1800s when the economy crashed in Germany to start a new life in the States. And my grandparents are coming up on the screen now. This is Elmer and Evelyn Carey, my grandma and grandpa, and me in eighth grade. I think the part's coming back, I think, as I heard. That's coming back soon, maybe. But this is my grandparents. And they and their, their parents before them are all German. I learned about my mom's side that the, the religion that we followed was Lutheran. They were Lutherans. But not just with the title of religious Lutheran, but they followed Jesus through the Lutheran church. And that, that goes back many generations. I learned that my, the women in our family have loved to bake for many years. And I always knew my mom was a good baker, making cookies and pies, and she's a great cook. And so is my grandmother that you saw in the picture. But I learned that generations beyond them, all the way back to Germany, the Careys cooked. And they even sold the goods that they made to earn a living. I learned a lot about my family on my mother's side. But also over the last couple of weeks, I learned about my father's side. And where my mom's side is from Germany and Lutheran, the German from, and Lutheran, my dad's side's um, from Ireland. They're Irish and they're Catholic. And they go back many generations. And they came over in the mid-1800s as well, during one of the famines in Ireland. And when they came over, they settled in Wisconsin, in Lake Geneva, the small little rural town. And they, who were originally farmers, started um, a business. And they opened a tavern. And my great-great-grandfather and his son and his son all ran this tavern for 70 years. And I've got a picture of them on the screen, too. That's my Aunt Terry in the picture. And my dad, the little boy's my dad. And then left to right is my grandfather, my great-grandfather, and my great-great-grandfather. And those three guys in the back I never met. They all passed away before I was born. It's the only picture I have of them. But that's part of their story. They were in business together. But let me tell you, the combination of being Irish and having a tavern is not typically that good of a thing. And I learned in my family history that there's alcoholism, from the men in my family for generations. I learned it goes back at least five generations from my dad all the way to my great-great-grandfather, alcoholics, from a young age, and blew out their marriages, every single one of them, every generation. And I've learned that about my story as well. All that to say, I've become really fascinated in history, in my family history. I want to learn more. I want to know more about my story. And I believe that is true for each of us here. If we're honest, each of us wants to know our purpose, our, our identity more deeply, our story, our past. And I believe in this few moments we have today, as we look at the genealogy of Jesus, God's going to teach us a few things. We're going to, by looking at the genealogy of Jesus, understand its purpose in the Bible for us a bit more clearly. We're going to understand our identity in Jesus even more, and how you and I fit in the family of God. So if you would, open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 3, beginning at verse 23. If you don't have your Bible with you, the, the bulletin insert is there for you to look at. It will also be up on the screen. And we're going to look this morning at the genealogy. Are you ready? Ooh, I don't know if I like this energy, but it's going to pick up. It'll pick up as we go. Luke chapter 3, verse 23. says this, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. It says, as of supposed, because Joseph adopted Jesus, because his biological father was God. And Jesus started his ministry at age 30. 
And it says this, Joseph, the son of Halil, the son of Metat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jeni, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maeth, the son of Matthias, the son of Simeon, the son of Jeesh, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Reza, the son of Serobello, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kozim, the son of Eladam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, a familiar name, <laughs> the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of, um, uh, where am I? <laughs> the son of, where am I? The sons of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashan, the son of Amminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahorn, the son of Zerig, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Ebar, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arxadad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Melilel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. It's a lot of names. That might be the only time you have to clap. That might be the only time you ever hear that read in church. It's the only time I'm ever going to read it. You know, the first thing we learn off the bat from that long list of names, some we recognize, many we don't, the first thing we learn is that there's a connection between the people of God, that there's this common thread. You see, in biblical times, you lived typically on a piece of land. There was a connectedness with people just geography-wise. They lived on a piece of land, and you would live on this piece of land for hundreds of years. In fact, um, I was in Ireland several years ago, and you can see remnants of stones that make the borders of people's property and land. You can see right on the screen here. You see the property lines of people. And this was very common in the Old and New Testament as well. Families, clan, and kin would live in a region for hundreds of years. And you would live in the same spot your great-grandparents lived in, and it was assumed your great-grandchildren would live there too. There was also not only a connectedness in where people lived, but in what they did vocationally. For example, if you were part of a blacksmith family, if you were a man in the, uh, man in the family, you'd become a blacksmith too. If your mother and father were farmers, that's what you would do for a living as well. And this lasted for hundreds of years, until the modern era, in the early 1600s. That's when things started to shift culturally. Before then, that's how things were. But in the beginning of the modern era, French philosopher and the father of modern-day philosophy, René Descartes, coined this phrase that turned history in Western civilization in a whole different direction. And René, and René Descartes said this. He said, I think, therefore I am. And with that new ideology ushered in a whole new way of living in the West. To one that it's about me, not we. That it's about I, not us. It's about the individual, 
not the family, the clan, or the kin. And gradually, there was this rugged individualism beginning to kick into society. And then over time, there was urbanization that took place, and people began leaving their family's homeland and moving to the cities. There was an increase in education and travel opportunities, along with fragmented families and divorce starting to take place, the fracturing of families. All that stuff happening over the last several hundred years, some of which is good, other parts not so much. And as a result, people are more scattered than they ever were before. People have lost their deep historical rootedness to a people and a place like we see in the genealogies. In our culture today, we live in a, an era that I think you could say people are psychologically displaced in a way. There's a lot of people asking, who am I, really? What is my identity, really? Where do I come from, really? And people are asking this question. And we know they're asking the question because you can see the ratings on TV shows that talk about this. There's all kinds of shows. And we've seen them for years now. Reality shows where families that have never met get together, right? And we see the homecoming, they meet for the first time. We've seen it on Dr. Phil for years, bringing families together that were fragmented. He brings them together to reconcile. One of my favorite shows that my wife and I love is called um, Who Do You Think You Are? Have any of you seen that? The premise is simple. They take a celebrity for a whole hour, and historians trace their family roots all the way back as far as they can. Pretty interesting. And the celebrity learns about their family background. But the whole point is people are curious about the subject. And what Luke's genealogy does for you and I is it helps us get connected to a people in a place. And the purpose of Luke's gospel is to tie Jesus to people in places, in society, to generations, to historical rootedness. As we look at these genealogies, in fact, there's two things we learn right off the bat. The first one is this, that God works faithfully from one generation to the next. We see right away that God works faithfully from one generation to the next. And number two, we see that we learn that sometimes the biggest contribution that you make is not your contribution at all. But it comes through your lineage, your legacy of faith that continues down your family line. For example, one day you might have a granddaughter that becomes this major force in the kingdom of God, becomes known all over the world for her faith in God and the impact she makes on the kingdom. And that came through your line. Now it might be in part because of your faith faithfulness in God and your obedience, and just bottom line through God's grace through your family line, that amazing things could happen. But those are two things we learn right off the bat. Now, genealogies, people who like do the one year reading through the Bible, anyone who's done that, have you ever got to the genealogies and start to like, oh my goodness, I don't think I can make, th make it through this. Have you done that before? I do that all the time. It's like, man, another genealogy. But they're there for a reason. In the New Testament, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only two of the four Gospels have a genealogy. Matthew and Luke. And if you guys have put the slide up, you won't be able to read this very clearly, but just to kind of see it, I just kind of want to have you see the contrast. They're not identical, they're a little bit different, and there's a reason. You'll even notice that there's five women located in Matthew's um, genealogy, and in Luke, he just has men. But they're writing to two different audiences. 
In Matthew, his book is being written primarily to the Jewish people of the day. The thrust of the whole gospel of Matthew is primarily to the Jewish people. So the genealogy, Matthew starts in chapter 1 with the genealogy. Because the Jewish people want to know, is Jesus connected to Abraham? So you'll notice in Matthew's line, he only goes as far back as Abraham. Because that's the case he needs to make. Luke's a little bit different. Luke is writing to the Gentiles, which is a fancy way of saying non-Jews, which many of us are. And he's writing to that audience, the non-Jews, of people of various nations, cultures, races, people groups. And that audience wanted to know, is Jesus really God? Did the God of the universe who created everything really become man? Is he really Emmanuel, God with us? So Matthew's writing to that audience, and his genealogy is in chapter 3. And you'll notice that he goes from son to father and goes backwards, son to father, and Jesus all the way back to Adam. Now I'm going to ask you a question in a moment, but I'm going to give you the answer right now. The answer is God's covenant love. All right? Okay, so that's the answer. Here's a question for you. Just kind of throw out there. If someone were to ask you, why are the genealogies in the Bible, what are they about, you would say, with conviction, you say, what are they all about, you would say, that's right. If you want to answer the question, and one day you will be asked why they're in there, you will have an answer now. The main answer is, the, the reason they're in there is to demonstrate and show God's covenant love. His covenant love for us. The word covenant in Hebrew actually is a word um, called hesed. The word is hesed, which is a very passionate word, meaning this. Hesed is the cons consistent, ever faithful, relentless, Constantly pursuing, lavish, extravagant, unrestrained, one-way love of God. From the beginning of time, through Jesus, to you and I today, and through us beyond till Jesus comes back, it's the unrestrained, unrelenting love of God, the covenant love of God, through the history of time, that you and I are a part of and get to take part in. As I said, there's 76 names. We will not go through every person's name today. And all God's people said, amen. amen. We will not do that. But we will look at three this morning very quickly to make this connection going back. And I want you to see, as we briefly go through this, God's faithfulness through the generations. Three people out of 76. And the first one's David. We're going to begin with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 16. Many of us know the story of David. He came out of nowhere pretty much to become king of Israel. And God did an amazing work in his life. And verse 11 says this. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him. 
and as I, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, and your throne will be established forever. There's two key words in that text we just read. Your throne. Meaning that David is the king and that his kingdom will be established forever. God comes to David, this little shepherd boy, and he's a no one from nowhere doing nothing. And God comes to him, this very unlikely candidate, and says that I am going to make you king. And through your line will come the king of kings. He says that you will sit on the throne and rule and reign over a nation, but one will come one day that will rule over all the nations. You will rule and reign on the throne for a season, but one will come that will reign forevermore throughout eternity. And that is the covenant that God gives to David. Now, keep going back. Person number two, to Abraham. The covenant of Abraham is a big covenant. In fact, we see it throughout the Bible, from Genesis, the Old Testament, all the way to the end of the New Testament. This, this Abrahamic covenant keeps coming up time and again, showing us how important it is. And in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, it says this. The Lord's talking to Abram. This is the very beginning of his journey with God. And the Lord has said to Abram, Go from your country and your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Insofar as we can tell, Abraham was from a pagan family, a family that wasn't following the God of the Bible. And he has generations of people that were not following God. And God calls out Abraham and tells him, invites he and his wife Sarah to move, to go to a new land that God was establishing and preparing for them. And God said, if you go, I will make you a, the patriarch. You will have a new legacy a new lineage, a new family line. And the very thing that God did for Abraham in this moment, I know God is doing through some of you. Some of you come from a family that don't know the Lord yet, but God's called you out. God's invited you into a relationship, and you've responded, and you're walking with Jesus, and you're making a way, and you're praying for your family to come to faith in Christ one day. But you know beyond a doubt that God's leading you to a new future. And God's starting a new legacy through you. And you're leaning into your relationship with the Lord. That's some of your stories here. That was Abraham's story. And he had a choice to make. To either stay where he was or to go and move forward. Go where God was leading. And he goes. He trusts God. And he follows him. And in another place in the Bible, it ends up saying that because of his faith, it was credited to him as righteousness that Abraham showed amazing faith by going and doing that. God tells him that you will have a son, and the son will become a nation, and ultimately that was the nation of Israel. And through that nation, God said, will come a savior, a deliverer from the seed of Adam. And that's what took place. Abraham trusted God, just like you and I trust God. 
He trusted that God would send a son. And you and I trust that, that God did send a son and ultimately that Jesus was and is the son of God. That Jesus is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise and covenant all the way back through the line throughout history. Well, to end Abraham's story, Abraham goes, he trusts God, and at the same time, he's human, and he's sinful, just like you and I. And because God didn't give Sarah a son as quickly as he wanted, he went out out of bounds, he had an affair, he got a woman pregnant, she gave birth to a son named Ishmael, and he was unfaithful. He didn't wait for God's provision. But what does God do? Even though Abraham is unfaithful, God is still faithful to him. God is still faithful to Abraham to fulfill the covenant that God established. And he does just that. Sarah has a son. It's Isaac, who turns in, his name's turned to Israel. He becomes the father of all the nations through Abraham. And he becomes a great nation. You know, in the New Testament, and this is where it's really relevant to us here, is in this moment, is Paul speaks to those who come to faith in Jesus of being part of the same line with no distinction. Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7 and 9. He says, Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham by saying all the nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. When you and I put our faith in Jesus Christ, accept him as our Lord and Savior, confess our sins to him, what Jesus does is he forgives us, gives us a clean slate, and he brings us into covenant relationship with him. We're adopted into the family of God, and we can never be disowned. And literally what happens is that line of names that we read and saw on the screen, those are our family members. Abraham's our great-grandfather a hundred times over. We are part of God's covenant, the family of God. Well, we looked at David. We kept going backwards to Abraham. Now we're going to go backwards to one more person, and that's Noah. You guys know Noah? Remember the great story of Noah? Did you know that there's a movie coming out on Noah? Any of you saw holiday movies? Did you see the trailer of the new Russell Crowe movie? I'm like, this is cool. Russell Crowe will be playing Noah. And he kind of looks like what Noah would look like, I think. It looks like a good movie. But Noah, an incredible story, this guy. In short, Noah lives in a time of incredible wickedness. So wicked, in fact, that the Bible says every person's heart outside of Noah's family was completely evil and hardened to God. Noah spent much of his life telling people about the love of God and demonstrating God's love but it fell on deaf ears. Every other person besides Noah's family didn't have a relationship with God. So as we read the scripture verses, it says God's had enough, and God tells Noah to build an ark and to gather all the animals and go on the ark with his extended family and for them to go and that God would provide a way through the ark to save them. And he does just that. Take a look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. It says the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created, 
and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah found what in the eyes of God? Favor. Favor in Hebrew is the word grace. Where Abraham found faith and had faith in God, Noah experienced the grace of God in his life. This undeserved loving affection, it's a great example of God doing good to a sinful person that didn't deserve grace, but God gave it lavishly because he loved Noah, he loved his family. That's God. What's so special about Noah, you might ask? Nothing. What's so great about Noah? Nothing in particular. It's all about God, God's covenant love to this family. And the Bible tells us Noah was a faithful man. He was obedient. He did some things that were righteous and great in the eyes of God. But at the same time, he was a sinful person. And if you read the story of Noah, he does some pretty crazy things in his life, sinful things. He wasn't perfect. But what we see is he walked with God. This imperfect person walking with God. And God had a covenant relationship with him. And God says this, after the floods come, the water subsides, everything's destroyed except Noah's family and the animals in the ark, and things are started anew. You could say Noah and his family were the new Adam and Eve, a new creation, a new beginning. God says this, and he makes this promise. In Genesis chapter 9, he says, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, and all those that come out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood, and never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. God's covenant promise. Now go all the way back to the very first person, Adam. First person God created. Chapter 3, verse 38 says this, the son of Adam, the son of God. The son of God is the key phrase linking God the Father with his son, Jesus. And you guys, for all, most of the fall, we were in chapters 1 and 2 of Luke, looking at Jesus' preparation, Jesus' birth, Jesus as a child, and now's the moment. At this moment, age 30, where Jesus formally is starting his ministry, setting out to do what he came to do, what he was sent to do. And how does Jesus begin his ministry? He begins by being baptized, being commissioned into the ministry that his Father has from him. The last scripture I'll read today comes from Luke chapter 3, verse 21. And all the people have gathered to be baptized. Jesus comes. Jeff taught on this a bit last week. And it says this. When all the people were baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven opened up and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. The same phrase that says, the son of Adam, the son of God, is the same voice, the same God that's saying, Jesus, this is my son. 
All of you witnesses right now are seeing my son being baptized. This is the one I love, that I deeply love. This is my child, my son. And at that moment, Jesus is commissioned into ministry to do the work he was set out to do. So, it's a lot of information to, to kind of take in today. But you might be asking yourself, why does this matter to me, ultimately? What's the takeaway? Well, let me tell you, the takeaway is this. All of us are meant to be in covenant relationship. For me, I'm in covenant relationship with Jesus, with my wife, with my children. We want Mariners to be a covenant church. To be a church where we just don't come as consumers to receive and leave, but where we're covenanters. Where we go through life together, learning to love and to serve. To serve within the church and to serve outside the church. To learn to go through the messy things in life together. You want to know why we talk about Rooted in Life groups so much? It's for that very reason. Why we gather with the women's ministry and why the men's ministry and guys take time to meet each week for an hour a week just to connect because we realize we need each other. We need each other to grow. That's what God has for us, to be in covenant relationship together. You know, in the Bible, some covenants are conditional. God says, you do this, and I will do this. But the covenant of salvation is an unconditional covenant. No strings attached. The covenant of salvation is there for the taking. It's a free gift from God. That's what's so crazy about Christianity that makes no sense at all. It is a free gift. I heard one person once say it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Knowing that he loves us no matter what we do, it makes us want to love him too. The love of God is so compelling, it makes us to want to stop being bad people. It makes us want to stop sinning. It makes us want to be more godly. Not to earn God's love, but to become all God's made us to be because of his covenant love. Because God loves us so much. He cares about you and I so much. And the thing we see with these saints in the Bible is they are people just like you and I. Abraham was an adulterer and a liar. And we read that he gave his wife away twice, which is two times too many. Don't do that. Jacob was a cheater and a thief. Judah traded slaves and enjoyed prostitutes. David was an adulterer and killed a man for his wife. And the people of God, even God, godly people, sinned and they rebelled and they failed. And yet God loved them too much to leave them in their sin. God loved them too much and God pursued them in relationship. The one thing we see in the genealogies is Jesus isn't afraid to be involved in messed up families. Because his family was pretty messed up as well. God wants relationship with us. That's what God desires and craves. And when we taste that relationship with God, things are never the same again. One of my favorite Christmas traditions over the last probably decade now has been to take part in this two-hour Christmas pageant at Juvenile Hall in Orange. Um, the chaplain's ministry there for the last 35 years, I think it is, puts on this two-hour program. The state government allows it to happen because it's done um, with consideration and excellence, and it's beautiful. It's about 150 volunteers that come in teams of 10. 
from churches all over Orange County. And in teams of 10, they go and meet with 20 kids in each cell blocks. Boys and girls are separated, and our team will go in. So every year, I've got my team. You know, there's 10 of us. We've got a guitar player. We've got a narrator who's going to read the Christmas story. We've got copies of the script, and it's like a reader's theater. And what we do is we go in, and the kids are marched in with their hands behind their backs. They all sit in the chairs while the security watches, and they're all like in a square circle kind of deal facing each other. And we pull out our little um, cardboard signs that say, Jesus loves you. We've got our script. We've got props where we put um, angels, halos on the kids, and they get volunteers to read the script. It's this beautiful kind of moment, sing Christmas songs. And after about half an hour of telling about Jesus' love and telling the Christmas story, we've got an hour to visit. And it is awesome. It's one of the highlights of my year. The kids do a craft, and normally they make a card for their mother for Christmas and send it out. They get snacks, and then they come and sit with us, and we get to visit and hear their story. And recently I met Gabriel, who's 16. His parents are both meth addicts. He recently just fathered a child with a young girl. He's been in prison four months, and he'll be there another nine to 12 months, he said. But he did something none of the kids usually do. Normally, they're like kind of back like this until you can earn their trust a bit. And they're just kind of sitting back. But Gabriel like grabbed his food and came right next to me and sat next to me like, hi, how are you? I'm like, good, how are you? And we, we learned each other's names. And he goes, Mike, let me tell you. He goes, I just came to faith in Jesus. He said the second week into being incarcerated, he went to the Protestant service on a Sunday, accepted Jesus, got a Bible, and he'd been writing prayer requests to the chaplain like day after day, and he said, Mike, I can't put my Bible down. He goes, God's changing my life. He's making me new, and I could see it. It was like for real. God was doing a work in this kid's life, and he said something I'll never forget. He said, Jesus didn't give up on me. And he said, my name is in the book of life. And he said, Jesus loves me. And he's making me into a better person. No truer words have ever been spoken. Because that's what Jesus does. If you're here and you think you have to have your act all together to become a Christian, you got it wrong. It's just the opposite. We come to God exactly where we're at. We make ourselves available to God and say, God, come near. And what Jesus does every single time is he runs to us, he comes to us, he welcomes us into the family, he welcomes us back if we strayed away. Because ultimately God wants covenant relationship with us. That's what he offers, and that's what he gives us. You know, as we close, I'm going to invite the worship team forward. And one of the things we love to do after the message is to have a time to respond. And there's a couple different ways you can do it. You can respond right from your seat and just kind of drink in what you heard and what God's saying to you today. One of the things we love to do is have time as we sing to come forward to be prayed for. Sometimes some of you say you feel uncomfortable excusing yourself down the aisles to get out. It's okay. Just kind of push people out of the way. You can come down. But we have prayer walls, and people love to write prayer requests down. On the wall, we've got 56 people now on the prayer team that pray for you. Any request in the wall, they will pray for what you write down. It's pretty cool. So I encourage you to take time. Write down what's on your heart. You know, I know some of you have struggled with feeling strongholds in your life, repetitive sin that you just can't get over, and you know that God loves you, 
Theologically, you know it, and you've tasted it, but you keep having this barrier because you know there's a sin that's kind of holding you hostage. And I know for a fact God today wants to heal you. He wants to help you break free from the strongholds in your life. And I encourage you to give that to God today. For some of you, you live in fear. And I've heard from many of you that you go, I'm just afraid a lot. I'm afraid of my future. I'm afraid of my finances. I'm afraid of being lonely. I'm afraid of this and that. And I just live in fear. I want to be released from my fear. And I'm here to tell you, God wants to release you from that today. The more you taste of his covenant love over you, the freer you become. The more alive you become. And God wants that for you today, too. And lastly, I know there are those of you in here today that haven't accepted Jesus yet as your Lord and Savior, and you feel this stirring in your heart right now. Your heart's beating a little harder, a little faster. And you want to accept Christ, and all you need to do is very simple. It's, it's almost too simple. You just need to quietly pray to yourself, say, Jesus, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And God, I believe that you are holy and I'm not. And I believe that you really do love me and where I don't believe, God, help me believe. But God, I offer myself to you. It's that simple. And right in that moment, you come into relationship with Jesus. Wherever you're at today, let's take this time to respond unto the Lord and let him continue his work. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your love and your grace. And the way you pursue us, God, the way you or lavish in your affirmation, the way you're relentless in coming after us, the way you love us in, our, in the good times and the way that you pursue us even when we're, we feel far from you. God, for those of us who came from really good families, they're not perfect, but came from good families, we celebrate that today. And God, there's some of us in here with that story and are just grateful today for the, the lineage we have and the great families we're a part of, and we're thankful and for those of us who've had difficult family lives, God, we're thankful that you've pursued us, that you love us, that you call us by name, that our identity is in you, and that you're starting a, maybe a new family line through us. And we're grateful for that. Lastly, Lord, we're grateful for covenant relationships and that we don't come just to play church and hear some good teaching and leave, but we're in it together. We're a family together. And God, we pray in this coming year, whether we're super connected or we're brand new, getting involved, that all of us, God, would lean into relationship and that we'd be expectant for what you have for us today. God, in the next 10 minutes or so, help us respond as you're calling us to. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.